Heavenly Father, we again thank you and praise you for the gift that we have in Christ. Lord, you have revealed yourself in this world. You have revealed yourself in our own heart. You've revealed yourself in the Word of God and ultimately in the person of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we know that um, people will always have a choice of what they will believe or, and what they won't believe, what they will embrace or what they will reject. Lord, it's our heart's desire that each and every person embraces you, comes to a place where they know you and they love you, where they experience forgiveness of sins and, and reconciliation to you. And so, Father, again, we commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're looking at John chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 47 through 57. I'm entitling the message this morning, When People Refuse to Believe. And then we're going to ask five questions. The first question is, what will people do with Jesus in verse 47? What generates unbelief and opposition in verses 47 and 48? What are the consequences of unbelief in verses 49 through 53? And then how does Jesus respond to unbelief in verse 54? And finally, how does God work in a world of unbelief in verses 55 through 57? Again, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 47, it says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Wouldn't that be great? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there remained with his disciples and the Passover of the Jews was near and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think that he will not come to the feast? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. It's a Jewish holiday in our text. It's coming up on the Feast of the Passover. And the Feast of the Passover was the holiday, if you will, that was dedicated to the removal of sins. The holidays are often marked by believers 
and unbelievers, or what I would call make-believers. For every Bob Cratchit and Tiny Tim, we find an Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, one of the very first plays I was ever in as a kid was in the sixth grade. And the star of the show is Ebenezer Scrooge. I wasn't the star. I played Bob Cratchit. He is sort of the other main character in Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol. And for those of you who are familiar with A Christmas Carol, it opens up with Bob Cratchit saying, May I put a small piece of wood by the fire? What? Cratchit? Sir, it's very cold. Put that wood back. Okay, that's all I remember. No, actually, I do remember more. If you ask the average American who watches The Christmas Carol, do you identify with Scrooge or do you identify with Bob Cratchit, the poor person who's trying to make ends meet? Ask the average American, are you a believer or an unbeliever? Typically, the unbeliever will respond with the same question some of you might have in your own heart. Well, what do you mean? Do you mean believe in God? Do you mean believe in Jesus? Do you mean believe in church or Christianity? Do you mean believe in giving rather than taking? You see, the truth is, everyone believes something, don't they? Our lives are molded and shaped and formed by the power of our beliefs. And the power of Dickens' classic tale, A Christmas Carol, is the power of persuasion. You'll remember that Scrooge at first is reluctant to believe his visitors, but in the end, he's willing to be persuaded. How like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some people are willing to listen to the evidence and be persuaded, but for some, the evidence doesn't matter. The Apostle James wrote, Are there still some among you who hold that only believing is enough? Believing in one God? Well, remember, the demon believes this this too, so strongly that they tremble in terror. That's James chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible teaches that a believer is not someone who simply believes God exists, The believer is the one who hears and embraces the good news about the Lord Jesus. So in a very real sense, the believer is the person who hears the word of God, who believes the word of God, who obeys the word of God. The believer is the person whose life is marked by Christ-like living. Unbelief is perhaps the oldest and it remains the deadliest of man's spiritual diseases. Unbelief began in the Garden of Eden when both Adam and Eve heard the word of God but failed to believe the word or obey the word and ate the forbidden fruit. Adam and Eve could easily, though, have characterized themselves as believers. Do you know what they believed in? The tempter. Remember the tempter's words? You shall not surely die. And they believed it. By the way, what did God say? In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely... So you have two voices. One that says you shall surely die. The other voice that says you shall surely not die. One of them was telling the truth. One of them was lying. Unbelief ruined millions of people in a single day. 
when they refused to hear Noah, the preacher of righteousness, who warned them for 120 years to escape the coming judgment. This last week on my radio program, someone called in and said, hey, if there were millions and perhaps even billions of people on the planet Earth when the flood struck, why don't we have any evidence of their existence? And I said, we do. You're putting it in your gas tank. They're little carbon spots. They've been compressed and made into fossil fuels. Unbelief managed to kill the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. When fire fell from heaven, unbelief kept Israel in the wilderness for 40 years and a whole generation perished. We're told in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 19. They could not enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is not the cause of sin. Sin is the cause of unbelief. And now, Jesus has to deal with those people who refuse to believe. Imagine we're issued a certificate, a spiritual death certificate. And there on the certificate, under cause of death, in bold letters, reads the words, He that believeth not is condemned already. Under contributing factors to death, we read, He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but wrath abides on him. If you believe that I am not he, you shall die in your sins. John 3.18, John 3.36, Mark 16.16. The Bible is clear that every manner of sin will be forgiven human beings, that the blood of Jesus cleanses from sin. And even though your sins are like scarlet, they can be made white as snow. But if a person doesn't place their faith, their confidence in the Lord Jesus, they place themselves just outside the mercy of God. So what will we do with Jesus? Look again in verse 47. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? That is, what shall we do with Jesus? For this man works many signs. The Sanhedrin, by the way, is sort of like the ruling body of the Jewish people. You'll remember that Jerusalem and Judea was an occupied country. It was occupied by the Romans. And even though the city was under the occupation of Romans, they were, exer- they were able to exercise somewhat of autonomy or exercise Control. They had local customs and they were expected to observe local law. The Sanhedrin had 71 members. It was led by the high priest. And in order to meet and pass judgment, according to ancient documents that we have, it was necessary that you had a quorum of 23 members. And it appears that what is happening is we're left with the impression that this is an official meeting. They gather a meeting. They have a quorum. The chief priest is present. Only they don't have a very long agenda. The agenda isn't, are we going to bail out the three big automakers? Are we going to bail out the banks? Are we going to raise or lower taxes? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? There's only one item on the agenda, and that is, what will we do with Jesus? Isn't that interesting? It seems 
a great thing to put on an agenda. Can you imagine if our Congress got together and they asked and answered the question, hey, what are we going to do with Jesus? But they do it almost every day, don't they? The city councils and the state government. What will we do with Jesus at Christmas time? Let's not talk about Jesus. Let's not talk about the Bible. Let's not, let's not make this a holiday. Isn't that funny? The word itself comes from the, the, from the root word holy day, a day that's been set aside, apart, to remind people about God. In John's Gospel, Jesus has turned water into wine. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus has healed the nobleman's son. In John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54, Jesus has healed the paralyzed man. In John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, Jesus has fed the 5,000. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, Jesus has walked on the water. In John chapter 16, verses 15 through 21, Jesus has healed the blind man. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. In chapter 11 verses 1 through 57. No wonder they said he keeps performing all of these signs. What are we going to do? He, he's like the Messiah gone wild. He keeps performing all of these signs. And if we keep, if, he, if we just let him keep performing all of these signs, everyone is going to believe in him. We read the signs like a laundry list. We might be tempted to think, right, right, Jesus performed miracles. But we forget the importance of those miracles. The meaning of those miracles. Remember, Jesus is the Lord of nature. Jesus is able to change one substance into another. Jesus is the Lord of life. He's able to give life on the condition of faith. Jesus is the one who restores lost powers. No matter how sick you are, no matter how sinful you are, Jesus is able to give the spiritual, those who are spiritually dead, He's able to give them life. Jesus creates. Jesus sustains. Jesus is the ultimate guide and helper. Jesus has come to his disciples in spite of impossible barriers. No matter how wicked or weird or problematic the circumstances, Jesus walks on the water in order to get to them. Jesus is light in dark circumstances. He is able to to reach each and every person who calls out to Him, who obeys Him, who walk in darkness, but who want to walk in the light. Whoever refuses to obey Him, whatever little light they have will be taken away from them. You'll notice that one of the options that isn't presented in the text is, why don't we just believe Him? No, 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 that's, we can't do that. You'll notice in the New Testament, one of the things that is really overwhelming is the fact that no one disputes the miracles. No one says, he's a fraud and a charlatan. He didn't really do all of those things. But miraculous event after miraculous event begins to complicate and compound concerning his identity. The religious leaders had an obligation to protect the people from religious charlatans. But they also had a responsibility to provide godly direction. 
to point people to the God of Israel, to point people to the true and living Messiah, to recognize and receive God's Messiah, to recognize and acknowledge the miracles for what they were, signs from God. And remember what a sign is at the most primitive, fundamental level. A sign is a communique. It's a communication device. You'll remember at the beginning of the gospel, remember an angel appears from heaven and he says, this is the sign. You'll find the baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. The sign is the baby. You'll remember that when the kings from the east show up and they say to Herod, The king, we've seen his star and we've come to worship him. And do you remember Herod's response? When you find him, let me know so that I might worship him also. Telling the truth or lying? He's a liar. He doesn't want to worship the baby. He wants to find the baby. He wants to take the swaddling clothes that the baby is wrapped in and put it on the baby's mouth and choke the life out of the baby so that the baby won't be a threat because a king can only occupy one throne. There can't be two kings and one throne. These religious leaders will oppose Jesus and reject Jesus. I received a call again this week on my radio program from a woman who tragically her young daughter died and the young woman who died left children and there was no responsible relative to take care of the children other than the grandmother. She was left to raise the children and she called me about the circumstances and she called me about her daughter, and she said to me, if she had it to do all over again, the one thing that the greatest regret of her life was that she had not taught her daughter to recognize and rejoice and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, because when she died, it left her with a terrifying emptiness. Where is she gone? And she said, I'm not going to make that mistake with my grandchildren. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to teach my grandchildren to be able to recognize and receive and respond and love and obey Christ. What generates unbelief and opposition? Look again at verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Did it ever occur to them not to leave him alone? but to embrace him. By the way, look at the reason that they're offering. The reason offered by the unbelieving Jews to oppose and resist Jesus is if we believe in Jesus, the Romans will come and take away both our place, namely the temple, authority, religion, and our nation. By the way, is that true? No, it isn't true. As a matter of fact, 
would belief in Jesus result in war with Rome and the subsequent destruction of the temple and the city? It isn't rejection. It wasn't it wasn't rejecting, it wasn't accepting Christ that brought about the judgment. It was rejecting Christ. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Accepting Christ brings grace. Rejecting Christ brings judgment. Their unbelief brought judgment. And every person, every person who finds it in their heart to resist and then reject Christ invites judgment. The basic reason given for rejecting the Lord is what we might call a selfish fear. A selfish fear that brings about unbelief that generates selfishness that is that is rooted in worldliness. And by the way, if we were to take fear, remember the Bible says perfect love casts out fear because fear has judgment. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is fear. And I've told you this over and over again. Remember, greater love hath no man than this, that he's willing to lay down his life for a friend. Fear is 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 love perverted. Fear is an unwillingness to give up anything. Fear is the presence of the possibility that I could lose something. I could lose my life. I could lose my wife. I could lose my marriage. I could lose my job. I could lose my religion. I could lose. You can fill in the blank. There's a kind of a fear that's motivated by God's awesome power and justice. That's not the fear we're talking about. Selfish fear is different. Selfish fear leaves God out of your thinking. And that's one of the ways that you know that when you are thinking thoughts, if God isn't a part of the process, that's one of the... One of the indicators that it is something selfish. The moment that you begin to think, what am I going to do? And you leave God out of the process. You need to check yourself and go, wait, 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 wait. Where does God fit in into this? The religious leaders aren't afraid of losing the truth. The religious leaders are afraid of losing their power, their position, their prestige, their profession. And I've run out of P words. People reject Christ because they want to hold on to their selfishness. They want the right to rule themselves. Aldous Huxley, in a moment of undisclosed truth, said the reason why I reject God and reject Christ isn't because of the evidence. It's because I want the ability to lead the life that I want to live. The brilliant scholar and philosopher Mortimer Adler, who was the editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, one of the great minds of the 20th century, was before he became a believer, was asked, why aren't you a believer? And in humility and simplicity, he just simply said, I'm going to just tell you for moral reasons and leave it at that. Later, when he came to a right relationship with God and Christ, he explained what he meant. It wasn't for lack of evidence. 
it was there, there was something dark and empty and wicked in his own life. Human beings want to be in control of their lives, their friendships, their possessions. People want the ability to do what they want to do without prohibition or without constraint. Conservatives want little or no interference from the government. Liberals and conservatives have at least this in common. Neither liberals nor conservatives want to be governed by God. And so, the world is broken down into two camps. Italians and people who wish they were. No, those aren't the two worlds. We keep coming back to those two worlds. The two worlds aren't Italians and people who wish they were. The two worlds are the believer and the unbeliever. In Mark chapter 4, verse 19, in the parable, Jesus talks about the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So what is it that you're afraid of losing by coming to Christ? What is your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends, what are they really afraid of? Their job? Their marriage? Their security? Their authority? What is it that you're clinging to? What is it that you're holding on to? What is it that is so important to you that you would rather remain in your sin than experience forgiveness and hope. So what does Jesus want? What does Jesus demand? Jesus wants you to believe in Him. Jesus wants you to deny yourself. Jesus wants you to pick up your cross. Jesus wants you to follow Him. And Jesus even invites you to ask the question, Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to Calvary. I'm going to go to the place where I'm going to die. And that's a sacrifice too great. When we come to the end of this message, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Those of you who have never received Christ. Some will. Most won't. And you know why most won't? Because they're unwilling to give up their lives. Give them a Jesus who demands nothing, who allows them to continue to live the life of comfort and belief, but belief without commitment. Jesus, they want a Jesus who will give you something, who will give you material wealth, who will allow you the ability to indulge every craving and satisfy every desire. Wear a cross? Sure. Die on a cross? No way. Follow Jesus? Yes, I'll follow Jesus to the Sermon on the Mount. I'll follow Jesus beside the still waters. I'll follow Jesus into the still pasture. I'll follow Jesus, but the moment I discover that Jesus is headed for Calvary and that at the end of the line that you might die, guess what? Most people run for their lives, and I'm glad. I'm glad that they do, because guess what? The world doesn't need one more hypocrite, and the world doesn't need one more make-believer.
In Luke chapter 9 it says, in verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and if he himself is destroyed or lost? There's a wonderful song on Christian radio that I love. It's just so cool. The song goes something like, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. That's it. That's it. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. So what are the consequences? Where is all this leading to? What are the consequences of unbelief? Look in verse 49. It says, and one of them, Caiaphas, his full name, Joseph Caiaphas. He was appointed high priest of the Sanhedrin in 16 A.D. The Roman procurator Valerius Gratus appoints him to the position of high priest after his father-in-law steps down. The Romans want a high priest that they can work with. The, the office of the high priest was bought and sold by political appointees. But that would never happen in our culture and society. I mean, you couldn't imagine a governor selling a senatorial seat for money. No, not going to happen. It did happen. And it didn't originate in Illinois. People have been buying and selling offices for ever since they had offices. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, some have suggested, well, John clearly doesn't understand that the appointment is an appointment for life. No. Uh, prior to 16, Annas was the high priest. Caiaphas steps down in 36 A.D. and he's forced to resign. And John, the apostle, says, you know, John has Caiaphas saying, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. What does Caiaphas really believe in his heart? What he really believes in his heart, it's better that Jesus die than the whole nation have problems with the Romans. Listen carefully. Caiaphas is willing murder a man to stay in power. In verse 51 it says, Now this he did not say on his own authority or under his own inclination. Here's, John, this is a parenthetical note by the prophet. He says, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, this unbelieving, selfish person is going to be used by God in spite of his wicked heart and in spite of his wicked circumstances. 
And in verse 52 it says, And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. We have an ancient order of service in a, a booklet called the Didache. It's a, it's a manual, if you will, that, what, that records church services, and it, and it dates to about 100 A.D. It's also called the Teaching of the Twelve. And William Barclay writes, quote, when the bread was being broken, speaking of the order of service, and wouldn't it, haven't you ever wondered what church was like in the first century? You know, what did they do? Did they sing songs? Did they have children come out? Did a person open up the manuscripts and begin to talk about the story of Jesus? Yes, they did that and, and more. They gathered in their own little open door cafe and they broke bread. And it says, even as the bread was scattered upon the mountains and was brought into one, so let thy church be brought together from the ends of the earth and the kingdom. That's from the Didache chapter 9, verse 4. They would take the grain that was on the mountains and they would smash the grain. And they would mix it together. And they would place it in the fire. And then they would partake of it. Isn't that a perfect description of what the church should be? You, broken. Me, broken. Us, broken. Placed in the fire together. So that a hungry world can partake of us. That comes from this particular passage. The bread had been put together from the scattered elements of which it was composed. So someday the scattered elements of the church must be united. And that's part of the point of the prophecy. At some point, the kingdom there in Jerusalem and Judea and even to the uttermost parts of the earth must come together. And then in verse 53, look what it says. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. You'll note, it isn't from that day on they determined whether to, 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 to prove that the miracles were true or whether or not he was the Messiah. No, the net result is they have to kill him and the opposition and the rejection begins not at the bottom but at the top. And that becomes something very important to each and every one of us. One of the consequences of unbelief is ungodly, unbelieving leadership. see, these men had the responsibility to lead the nation, but they were leading the nation astray. According to George Barna and Barna Research, only half the Protestant pastors have a biblical worldview. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. We're not talking about Roman Catholics and liberals. We can leave them to the mercies of God for just a moment and just talk about the Protestant pastors, those who are supposed to embrace a biblical worldview. And Barna rightly points out, and I quote, the most important point is that you can't give people what you don't have. 
And you can't give people hope and you can't give people faith and you can't give people confidence in the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ and the miraculous and that people come back from the dead and that Jesus is in the business of changing people from the inside out unless you believe it yourself. And then he defines it. He says, for the purposes of the research, a biblical worldview was defined as believing that absolute moral truths exist. That's number one. And that such truth is defined by the Bible. Can you begin there? Can you believe that there is such a thing as absolute moral truth? That it exists and that it exists in the Bible. Is there something that's true everywhere, every time, in every generation? There are people who will say, no, that's not true. When people, when people say that to me, I say, okay, I'll give you... Is it ever a good idea to torture children just for fun? Oh, you got me there. I guess in some cultures it might be okay. Really? Really? Number two, a firm belief in six specific religious views. Those views are, number one, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. That God is the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe, and he still rules it today. Salvation is a gift from God that cannot be earned. Satan is real. A Christian has a responsibility to share their faith in Christ with other people, and the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches. Do you realize that more than half of the people surveyed couldn't sign on to those fundamentals? How can we expect Christians to have a biblical worldview when leaders fail to embrace historical biblical Christianity? You know, one of the interesting results of Barna's research, the pastors or leaders most likely to reject historical biblical Christianity, reject a biblical worldview, were those with a formal theological training. It surprises me. People often will come to me and say, where did you get your theological training? Where did you go to seminary? And I said, well, you know, I went to Calvary and I went to Skip Heitzig's garage. Skip Heitzig's garage. Never heard of that place. Well, I received my theological training in Skip's garage, where Skip received his theological training. The seminary graduates, 45% didn't have a biblical worldview. In contrast, three out of five pastors who have not attended seminary operate with a biblical worldview. That was 59%. The largest gap related to gender. 53% of male pastors had a biblical worldview. The same could only be said for 15% of the female pastors. Overall, just 6% of all Protestant senior pastors are women. Another huge gap was based on race. White senior pastors were nearly twice as likely as black senior pastors to have a biblical worldview. 55% versus 30%. Another astonishing statistic related to age and experience. The younger the pastor, those under 40, the more likely they were to have a, a, a biblical worldview. Now get this. No training little education and youth with training, education, and experience 
push them over the edge into the realm of not having a biblical worldview? Is this to promote a lack of training? No. It's to say, if you go to a place that teaches you not to trust God and not to trust the Bible and not to believe the Bible, at what point are you going to go, I'm done here. Why in the world would I send my children to a place that are going to teach them to not believe in God? So why do leaders who reject Jesus and Christianity continue to lead? The answer is given to us in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 10. The prophet Isaiah wrote, His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are dumb dogs. No offense to animal lovers. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. And in verse 11 it says, chapter 56 of Isaiah, Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way. Everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. The idea being, hey, this is my job. I'm, I'm a classically trained religious instructor. And this is my job. No. Your job is to point people to Jesus. Your job is to tell them that the Bible is true. And when the pastor ceases to do that, it ceases to be a church. Peter warned in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Part of the consequences when people refuse to believe, it doesn't typically happen from the bottom up, it happens from the top down. We live in a world where increased pressure is brought to bear for religious leaders to endorse not just to endorse, but to embrace and celebrate homosexual behavior as normative and even wholesome. For many, spiritual leadership is seen as political or cultural leadership, and leaders are willing to exchange the truth of Jesus for the passing approval of a culture that rejects the revelation of God, that rejects the Bible, that rejects God in nature, and that rejects God in conscience. And each and every one of them should step down. Do something useful. In our text, the religious leaders, the high priests, have come to the conclusion that Jesus must be sacrificed in order to save the people and save the nation. And we're left with the impression that the high priest fears riots, that the government will come in and take what little religious freedom they have and take it away from them. There are Protestants who believe that. You know, you can't talk about homosexuality from the pulpit. Dude, you're going to wind up in jail one day. I know. Will you come and visit me? If I have just some iced tea and a Chick-fil-A sandwich from time to time, I will be fine. You know what? God was going to allow Jesus to be a sacrifice for the nation. God was going to allow Jesus to be sacrificed 
he was going to allow Jesus to be killed for the people. Not so that they could continue to exercise social, political, and cultural existence, but so that they could experience liberation from sin. And you know what? The best place in the whole wide world might be for me to be in jail. If being in jail means I'm in jail because I told the truth. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that someday someone will go, He's in jail because he told the truth? I won't be the first one. And I certainly won't be the last one. Jesus will die as a substitute. A substitute for both Jew and Gentile. The decision is made. And Jesus is rejected. And there is no more tragic decision. To reject Christ. To put him away. To push him aside. To make every attempt to make Jesus unimportant, irrelevant. But make no mistake about it. Opposition to Jesus will never be content to remain there. It will eventually result in killing him. And that's what some unbelievers do in order to make the voice go away. They'll close their Bible. They'll refuse to go to church. They won't allow anyone to speak about Jesus in any way. And so how does Jesus respond to unbelief? Look at verse 54. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he remained with his disciples. How does Jesus respond to opposition? How does Jesus respond to rejection? How does Jesus respond to unbelief? Read it for yourself. He no longer walked openly among the Jews. He went away. He stopped pleading with them. He allows them to embrace their own desires. And it becomes perfectly illustrated in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, as God gives people over to their own circumstances. You know what is the most dangerous prayer a person could ever pray? It isn't to receive Christ as Savior. It's to pray this prayer, Jesus, leave me alone. Now imagine when Jesus answers the prayer. Okay. Okay. That's exactly what I'll do. I will leave you alone. Sometimes Jesus will allow unbelief to run its course. Jesus will allow people to exercise rebellion and disobedience and hardness of heart. My friend John MacArthur calls this the wrath of abandonment. He writes, it is the wrath exhibited by God when he turns his back on a society. In Judges chapter 10, the Lord God speaks, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. God is saying, I'm done with you. Imagine a country that says, we don't want God in our thinking. They experience a sexual revolution. 
and then they experience a homosexual revolution. And then they suppress the truth. And they bury it deeper and deeper and deeper. The city of Ephraim, by the way, was near Bethel, the hill country north of Jerusalem. In Hosea chapter 4, verse 17, there's a very interesting scripture. There, the Lord says through the prophet Hosea, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. What? I thought God wouldn't abandon you ever. I thought God would always be with you. It seems so uncharacteristic. God is saying, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Shouldn't he say, Ephraim is joined to idols. I'm coming, Ephraim. You know why I won't leave you alone? Because I'm not God and I don't have the ability to look deep in your heart. So I'm going to bug you. I'm going to continue to bug you. And I know some of you are thinking, I know, that's why I'm staying home. And if I listen to it, I'll listen to it on tape. I thought God never gave up on anyone. How do you explain Jesus' instruction to his disciples to turn their backs on those who reject them and their message? The Lord said in Genesis 6, 3, My spirit will not always strive with man. Of the religious leaders, Jesus said, Let them alone. These are blind leaders of the blind. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 12 says, I want to warn you, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest you become hardened because of the deceitfulness of sin. The writer of Hebrews says, get together, encourage one another and remind one another that sin is deceitful. But the reality is. Today is the day. Today is the day that we can encourage one another and minister to one another and provide for one another. And look what it says in verse 55. How does God work in a world of unbelief? It says, And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the, from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, there's any number of things that a Jew could do to make him or herself, himself or herself ceremonially impure or defiled, you'll remember that for Jewish ladies, having a baby would render them ceremonially unclean. Touching the dead would render you unclean. Certain foods would render you unclean. Leprosy, the disease of leprosy, would render you unclean. Sin would certainly make a person unclean. Sexual misconduct, idolatry, murder. Going early meant you could undergo the necessary washings and cleansings. The law was clear. Every man is bound to purify himself before the feast so that they could become clean. And remember what Passover is. It's a feast day. And what is the purpose of the feast day of Passover? By the way, this is the third Passover mentioned in the Gospel of John. The other Passover, I believe, is mentioned in chapter 2. The other one in chapter 6 here. So this is one of the reasons why we know that the ministry of Jesus lasts three years. But the ministry of the Passover is to remove sin. It's to cleanse sin. How in the world can you cleanse sin 
by killing the Savior. We have a festival. We call it Christmas. What in the world is Christmas all about? Does it have something to do with Jesus coming to the planet Earth? Does it have something to do with the Savior? But we live in a culture and a society that says, make them be quiet. Stop talking that way. Look in verse 56. Then they sought Jesus. Isn't that great? Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Verse 57. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. The ultimate consequence of unbelief? Jesus becomes an outlaw. Jesus is now placed at the top of the SBI list. That's the Sanhedrin Bureau of Investigation. He's on the most wanted list. They're offering a reward to turn him in. And for the religious leaders, it's Passover. And the Feast of Passover, if it has any representation, it means the removal of sins. And while the religious leaders are preparing, think about this. This this is how they're preparing for, for the Feast of Passover. We're preparing for the Feast of Passover by trying to figure out a conscientious way to kill Jesus. You know, there's a, a movie coming out. I think it's called Valkyrie with um, Tom Cruise. That's it. And in this movie, the theme of the movie is the plot to assassinate Hitler. And many people are going to go, yeah, what's wrong with that? Yes, right on. Kill the wicked, evil Hitler. Makes good sense. These people aren't plotting to kill Hitler. These people are plotting to kill Jesus. And literally the city begins to swell with tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands, maybe close to a million people. They begin to flood into Jerusalem. The picture is one of people talking and asking and thinking about Jesus. Hey, is Jesus going to come to the temple? Is Jesus going to show up? Do you think Jesus will show up? Just like now, huh? When you go to South Glen or Southwest Mall or Cinderella City or wherever it is that you go to shop. Do you ever just sit around the Christmas tree and go, I wonder if Jesus will show up this year? I wonder if Christ will make an appearance? Do you think Jesus will show up? If this season has any value whatsoever, even for the unbeliever, even for those who reject Jesus, even for those who oppose and reject Jesus, there is a sense in which curiosity is stirred up among other people. Is it possible that the Bible is true? That the prophecies are true? That the miracles are true? 
Can God take even rejection and opposition by some and use it to stir interest in Jesus by others? I want to warn you about something. The greatest periods of spiritual revival and religious awakening have come on the heels of opposition, suffering, persecution, abuse, martyrdom. If every pastor in America goes to jail and it results in a revival, I'm for it. Just remember, iced tea, Chick-fil-A. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes, The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Unquote. The meaning? God will abandon sinners to their own choices and the consequences of those choices. There are people within the sound of my voice who have made the choice. Not necessarily in their mind to walk away from belief in Jesus. But to walk away in their heart. So they can pursue a relationship that they know that they have no business being in. So that they can pursue a job that they know that they should have no business participating in. So that they could continue to live a life that they think is going to be satisfying to them. But you know what's wonderful? If there is such a thing as a wonderful thing about unbelief. Unbelief can be abandoned. And belief can be embraced. People can turn from their sin. And people can turn to the Savior. I'm going to ask you to stand for a moment and I'm going to have the worship team come up. And for those of you who need to have a right relationship with God and don't, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And by all means, it's a very very bad idea to come forward if you don't really mean it. Like I said, the world doesn't need one more make-believer. But if you're tired of rejecting and resisting Jesus, if you want to opt for the one thing that the religious leaders didn't do, Believe Him. Embrace Him. Love Him. And follow Him. I'm going to give you that opportunity. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to You. Lord, I pray for that person whose heart is broken and empty. They've wrestled with You and they've wrestled with the scriptures and they've wrestled with the excuses and they've wrestled with the evidence but in the darkness and the loneliness of their own heart they know the real reason why they've resisted you because they don't want you to be in control of their life and they don't want you to be the person who makes the choices of where to go and what to do Lord I pray for that person who can be reached, for that person who must be reached, that you would knock on the door of their heart 
that you would extend the invitation to believe, to receive, not judgment, but grace. Mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, hope, heaven. In Jesus' name.